Okay, we're looking again at John chapter 1 and the grace of Christmas and looking especially at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I believe there are no lines from the God of heaven that come close to what we are studying here in this first chapter of the Gospel of John, especially verse 14 of, of this word becoming flesh. We have said in the past that the best chapter in the Bible is Romans 8, and the best psalm is Psalm 23. Well, I would say that this is the best Christmas account of all of the wonderful accounts, one of which we have just read in Luke chapter 2. The Word, who in the beginning was with God and was God, the maker of everything, the maker of heaven and, of, and earth, the light and life which shines and conquers the darkness and death of our world. That word became flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came as holy and as innocent as Adam, but he did not come in the strength of Adam. He came in weakness and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. God becomes man, the God-man tabernacling with us, God with us, our Emmanuel. What soul, what mind, what tongue could possibly recount the riches of this high mystery? Angels despair of plumbing the depths that God would take his own creation in such close union with himself to form one person so as to be your mediator and mine. Yet here is another wonder. John not only says that these things are true, he says that he has seen it. That's striking. We beheld his glory. We saw his glory. We gazed upon him. The apostle John saw it. John the Baptist saw it, as verse 15 comes in. John testified about him. Have you seen him? Do you see the glory of his grace who has come down to bring you to heaven? As though you, if you were the only person on earth who needed saving, your Savior would have come for you. This is glorious. We are to see Christmas we are to behold him. We are to see the word made flesh. The word who is full of grace, full of glory, is something to, or someone to be observed. And so these are really the two great pillars of this mysterious temple, the highest temple of God here in John 1. You have the glory of Christmas, which is our message this evening. You'll see the title of our message this evening is Seeing Christmas. We beheld him. Who is he? And then the grace of Christmas is what we're looking at today. The two are intimately related. I hope you understand that glory is only grace come to maturity. Glory is, um, is, a, is grace triumphant. And likewise, grace is glory militant. Glory is uh, grace uh, in the bud, and it produces that glory in due time. So we see how grace is so important to these five verses that we're looking at here. We've mentioned at the end of verse 14, 
we saw this only begotten from the Father, full of grace and in truth. Skipping over 15 to 16, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. And again, verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So four times we find this, this, uh, this grace. There's a fullness that is here, like an endless ocean. And grace upon grace, grace following after grace. God is inexhaustible in his grace towards his children as wave after wave comes off of uh, his, his love to us. And verse 17, <clears throat> in some kind of contrast with Moses, grace and truth have now come through Jesus, the Messiah, the promised Christ of the Old Testament. So four times in all. So the first thing we want to do here in our message this morning is to ask the question, what is grace? What is grace? What comes into your mind, into your heart, when you think of this central biblical word? John Blanchard says, grace is incapable of explanation. It is so rich, so high, so multivariated. It defies complete definition. Another author says, he goes so far as to say that we shall not even be able to fully explain grace in heaven. It's that big. It's too large for us to grasp. Perhaps grace can be discovered better by what it does than anything else as to defining its essence. The Puritan Thomas Brooks says, grace turns lions into lambs and wolves into sheep. It makes monsters into men and men into angels. It gives life as it overthrows death. Grace shines light as it banishes all darkness. Grace turns pebbles into pearls and coal into diamonds. It deals with sin, not by just punishing it, but by forgiving it, by cleansing us from the sins that would sink us into the depths of hell. Enmity, opposition, alienation on the part of sinners is overthrown by a reconciling tenderness and kindness that is of grace. It ultimately overthrows hell by bringing us to heaven. Grace is greater than all our sin and all it does because it is the grace of Almighty God. That's why it's indescribable. J.I. Packer, no doubt reflecting on the end of Romans 5, where grace exists, he says, it reigns. It sits as king. It's the dominant factor in the situation. And because it's God's grace, it's the centerpiece of the Bible. But there is one central factor when we think of grace that should pop into our minds. The one word which best facilitates our understanding of the riches of God's grace, a term that the Apostle John uses more than all of the other biblical writers do. And for some reason, beyond my ability to understand, he reserves the use of this particular word until chapter 3 and verse 16. And that word, of course, is the word agape, or love. John uses that word love more than any other writer. And yet he doesn't use love here. He waits John 3.16, where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And yet love is 
tied to grace. Thomas Goodwin said, grace is the freeness of his love. This is God's heart towards you in a gracious way, winning you, saving you, bringing you to himself. Grace is love that gives and that loves the unlovely and the unlovable. The essence of grace is that God is for us, writes T.H.L. Parker. No doubt he's thinking of uh, Romans chapter 8, where it goes on from there and says, nothing at all can possibly separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This uniting grace of God flows forth from his love. And I really like what John Stott says on grace. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues those who are in such great need. Uh, we usually have a, tr- a rather simple definition. Grace is unmerited favor. But that favor has so many different facets to it. Um, as we mentioned earlier, all the things that it does, it changes us, it forgives us, it adopts us, it sanctifies us. It's going to glorify us. It's going to enrich us to all eternity, you see. How much grace is there? How deep is God's grace? How wide? How high? Well, it's me- this is measured by our second point. And this answers the question after asking what grace is, where is grace to be found? And these five verses say in spades, it is all, every bit of it, found in no other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Word made flesh. He is full of grace and truth in verse 14. Grace upon grace are received from his fullness In verse 16. And grace and truth came to be realized in him. In verse 17. In other words, Jesus is the embodiment of the love of God to us. (coughs) Filled with grace. He's the fullness of the Father's love. The infinitely gracious Son of God made flesh stooping down to redeem us. A couple things then are to be observed here. (coughs) Excuse me a second. I received a present from my family that I'd like to return. (coughs) There's the beginnings of a cold. All of us have been under the weather a little bit this week. Um, Notice the fullness, first of all, here in this passage. John says all the fullness of the riches of God's grace are found in him. His grace is found not in the church. It's not found in the creature. The grace, this, his grace is upon grace, upon grace, is not found in the saints. We can't turn to those saints who are in heaven and be praying to them. We certainly may not follow our friends in the Roman Catholic Church who are praying daily a false prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace. She is not. Fullness of grace is found in Christ and in Christ alone. There is this splendid redundancy. All grace for all of time, for every situation, and for all of eternity. And every single bit of it is in Him and in Him only. You see then, secondly, the personal quality. Truth is coupled with grace two times. In 14, not only is He full of grace, but full of truth. Grace and truth, and it's repeated In verse 17, 
grace and truth were, came about through Jesus Christ. Many make the mistake and read the word truth here as an ethical, with an ethical meaning. The truth over against, say, what is false, or over against what is insincere. You're not being truthful. But John uses truth often in a very different way. He uses truth as a synonym for real, that what is genuine over against what is provisional or temporary. For instance, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, Moses gave manna to the children of Israel. Not Moses, actually, but it's the Lord. But then he says that I am the true bread come down from heaven. Now, he doesn't mean true bread over against lying bread or untrue bread, but rather temporary, provisional, you see, um, pointing to the true bread who is Christ. So what this passage is saying by, by truth and grace is that Christ is the embodiment of grace. Grace is with Christ as it is with God and an attribute which defines him. Jesus, in his deity, is gracious. He doesn't just have grace, he is gracious. To have him is to have the grace of God. And John's gospel unfolds this. We find him being presented in these 21 chapters as the true life. He is the water of life in several places. In John chapter 4, and is found again in John chapter 7. He is the the true Savior from heaven. The true wine in chapter 2. The true bread, chapter 6. The true light, John 8. The true shepherd, John 10. The very resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I have the resurrection and the life. I am. He is the true, you see. He is the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. The true vine in John 15. He is the giver of the spirit of truth. He pours out from himself, the third person, in his uh, economic relationship to the church, chapter 16. And, of course, he is the true high priest in John 17. So he is the heavenly to which all the provisional of the Old Testament pointed. And that brings us to another observation then in chapter 17. It's dealing here with where is this grace to be found? It's to be found fully in Christ and personally in him. Many look at verse 17 and they want to drive a wedge between the Old and the New Testament by this. They want to say, well, Moses and the law, that was going that direction. Now we're in the New Testament and we're, in, we're about grace, you see. But who is to say that there's no grace and no Christ in the Old Testament? That you don't find grace and mercy and, 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 and Christ being prefigured. In, uh, in Moses. The emphasis in Moses is indeed upon the law. But when you and I think of law, we think of this list of commandments, don't we? The Bible doesn't use the word law that way often. It rather speaks about the whole body of truth, or what's called the Torah, the instruction that is given through Moses. And that includes the Ten Commandments. That includes the various uh, demands of God. But it also includes all kinds of provisions for mercy and grace and the priesthood and the temple and the sacrifices and so forth. It includes the types and the shadows that prefigure Jesus. But now the manner in which God's revelation is made of his love in his son, that's what's unique about the new covenant. 
you have to kind of look behind the types and, and, and figures in the Old Testament to find the grace and to find Christ. In the New Testament, it's, it's as it were on the very forehead as you're opening your New Testament books. Jesus has brought light and life, immortality, right on the surface to us. That's what John is talking about when he says, we saw this glory of the one who is so full of grace. This is the Father's provision. John says the same thing. That's why this, it's almost verse 15, almost seems like an interruption of the flow of the text. But it's because John saw the same thing. And in fact, later on, he goes on and and, and repeats these very words in uh, verse 30. And it's tied in with recognizing Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes our sin away graciously. So, the emphasis of Moses is indeed upon law. The emphasis in the new covenant is upon gospel. Good news, great news, glad tidings of great joy as we read in Luke chapter 2. The reality has now come of God's gracious provision by sending his very own son for us. The whole book now, the whole Bible is the book of Christmas. All of it points to him who has come full of grace. You take away grace, you take away the whole Bible. The whole Bible from from Genesis 3.15 on is about the saving grace of God. Jesus and his fullness of grace have now come. And this illumines everything now, both old and new. Or let's put it this way. When God told Moses that nobody could see his face and live, placed him upon that rock, which we read of in the book of Exodus, and made his glory pass before him, but as it were, hid his eyes until he was passed, so he could just see the reflection of it, and then saw the majesty of God from that setting. I mean, that's, and what did God say when, when he was doing that? What did he proclaim? He proclaims his own name. My name that is full of, of steadfast faithfulness to you, Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet will by no means clear the guilty. If we don't avail ourselves of his grace, we stand in our sins and we are doomed. He has promised, he has warned us. There is no other refuge but the grace of God in his Son. What do we have now? In John 1, the word made flesh is the one in whom we now see God. And now we see God in Jesus, as it were, face to face. What you could not have before the, before the incarnation. It's not just one special servant like Moses or Aaron who has access to the Shekinah glory or who have these visions that are given to them, but all of God's people as made New Testament priests <coughs> enjoy this immediate fellowship with the living Savior. Jesus is himself the open embodiment of the glorious riches of God's grace to us in the gospel. In the gospel, he makes his glorious grace walk before us. And we are to embrace him. We are to see that and receive from him what we need. That Shekinah glory that that manifested itself in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, tabernacled in the Old Testament, is now tabernacled in Jesus' humiliation here on earth. So that everybody may come, and not just the Jews, 
but the Gentiles as well. And he comes, how? As we've been highlighting all along. Not to condemn, but rather to save. He comes with grace. He comes with mercy. Oh, the glory of this grace that is in him, the riches of this grace. As Paul puts it to the Ephesians, the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ in his grace towards sinners. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And this brings us then to our last point today. What grace does in and for our lives Or, to put it this way, why do we need Jesus so completely? What does grace do in our lives? What does it do for us? We recognize in God not sparing his own son, but sending him into this world and then delivering him up on a cross. All of this, every single step of the way is telling us again and again, God is not doing things by halves. He is giving everything to us. He is making such a provision for you and for me. This is such a rock, such a salvation, a so great salvation. He has not sought to meet us halfway. Well, I'll come this far. I'd like you to come this far. No, he has come all the way down to the very depths. And look at the people that he saves. He saves the sinners. He saves the lowly. Here he is rubbing elbows with with prostitutes with the tax collectors, with the worst ilk. Because the self-righteous who say, I don't need to be saved, their ears were plugged to this glorious truth. And if you don't hear this, you don't recognize your need for him, you're in trouble. People actually mock the gospel when they're in fact perishing from the very sins which Jesus has come to offer salvation from. So, We'll see tonight as the father gives his his second self, as it were, giving us his son in order that we might be saved, that this has secured this self-glorifying reality. God's chief desire in this world is to glorify himself by saving bad people. That's what what he does. If If you're not a sinner, you're not going to heaven. Because if you're not a sinner, then you don't have the remedy for your sin. And the remedy is Christ. So Jesus here is both a complete and eternal Savior. There's nothing lacking uh, uh, in him. And he redeems, says the Bible, to the uttermost. He doesn't start saving somebody and and then doesn't finish. But brings us to the heights. The moment that you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are ready for heaven at that moment. If you were to die the next second, you have the righteousness of Christ. You have his grace and you are prepared for glory and only through him, only by him. The greatest gift that God could possibly give us is his son full of grace. This is precisely what we need, precisely what we must have if we are to know God, if we are to fellowship with him if we are to know that he keeps us through all the twists and turns of our lives and to know that he's going to save us not just in time, but to all eternity. The message here is that grace is bigger than all of our sins. 
And grace brings us out of our deplorable condition for all of time and for all of eternity. It is emphatically not that God helps those who help themselves. In John 3, we read these words, we've already quoted them, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What kind of a world is this for? He goes on in verse 19, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Recognize, God so loved those who loved darkness. God loves the sinner. Our sins are so bad, not just in themselves, but especially in relationship to such a great, perfect, and holy God as the Lord God is. The late R.C. Sproul used to love to say it this way. He said, God has come into this world to save us from God. God's justice, God's wrath, that's what we need to be saved from. Your sins are too big to save yourself from them. His wrath is too too high, too mighty to be able to escape. But God makes the provision to save us from his own righteous wrath. How? By pouring all that wrath that my sin deserves, which is hell itself, upon Christ. Jesus pays it all, and all to him I owe. I bear none of that anymore. My sins rightly would send me to hell. But Jesus has paid the price so that we are free. If all of our salvation then, as the Bible says, is of grace, this means that what connects us, what links us with God here in this way of grace, not merit, is not our goodness. It's actually my badness. God has saved me, is saving me, will save me. It's not my worth that connects me to the Lord. It's my wickedness that God has determined to deal with, to eradicate, to remove, and to save me from. It's not my merit that keeps me in place with him, but ultimately my misery, not the riches, but the rags. B.B. Warfield says, man does not secure the grace of God. The grace of God secures man, and only men who receive him, who believe. John Blanchard rightly says, grace is not a reward for your faith. Faith is a result of grace. This is such a a God-centered, God-moved thing. God loves you. Why? Not for anything in you, and yet we continue to try to put conditions on it. Lord, I'll really believe that you're my God and I'm truly saved when this sin is out of my life. It doesn't work that way. It's absolutely backwards. So God helps not those that help themselves because we are helpless. God helps the helpless. God helps exactly those who've come to the end of their tether, the end of the rope, the end of themselves. Think of the prodigal, Luke 15. That poor, hungry boy, he he was going to live without his father. I'm going to take all the riches of God. I'm going to enjoy this world. I'm going to live as though there is no God in this world. That's this world's history. Taking all of these good things and forgetting God until that life doesn't work anymore. And you find yourself in the pigsty of your sin. 
And as he's sitting there coveting the food of the swine, it says that the, that the prodigal son came to himself. He began to see the truth of his condition. And it's at that point he says, I will arise and go to my father. And that's what we need to do. How do we come to the father? Through the son. Well, see then, as we conclude, there is enough grace in Jesus. There's enough for the world. I love this statement. I think I used it previously. Maybe I didn't. I, I, I preached this series with resurrection. I got messages flying. But um, Carl F.H. Henry said, the, he said this. He said, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But in delight, they said, look what has come into the world. Our world is really, really messed up on a lot of levels and in a lot of different ways. But this book, this book of grace, centered upon Jesus, the King of grace, has the answer. And we need to rely upon that like the early church did. There's enough grace in Jesus for hell-deserving sinners. Because Jesus saves us from all of our sins, which are sinking us into hell if we don't have this remedy. Hear me, you will perish if you remain in your sins and don't turn to Christ. There's enough for hell. There's enough for heaven. Um, it's, it's interesting that in Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's in verse 7, Paul talks about how in the age, only in the ages to come will this rich grace be shown. It's almost like this world, this universe right now is too narrow a canvas upon which the richness of the Son of God's grace can spread its arms, spread its wings, and show its greatness. Your salvation in heaven is so far above your best imagination is what this is saying. Jesus' grace is enough for heaven. And Jesus' grace is enough for this world. We rightly sing, amazing grace. Is it amazing to us? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Why? Because of the fullness of grace in Jesus Christ. We will always be praising God for his grace in his Son, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, from the heart of love from our Heavenly Father. I want to put a personal P.S. on the end of this uh, sermon. As this is my last Sunday morning message, I know that I have failed you in many ways over these last 19 years. But I hope that I have not failed in placing before you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel makes up for everything. Without the gospel, we are, our goose is cooked. You need and I need to make Jesus, make what Jesus has done for us known far and wide. All of us are no better than just beggars showing other beggars where food is to be found. We have found the bread. We have it. We've been given this 
by the Lord. And as I said earlier, there is nothing so important as in, in a person's life as trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Nothing in your life compares with that. And our desire to make that known to others so that they would trust needs to be always on the front burner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word of grace. Thank you for Jesus, full of grace. Grace upon grace, that your grace can never fail because it is divine. We thank you, Lord, for your hold upon us. We would hold on to you, but we know, Lord, it's all dependent upon your mighty grip. We thank you for that wonderful promise, I give unto them eternal life, and no man plucks them out of my hand. And my Father, who is greater than I, he holds them, and no man can pluck them out of his hand. We thank you, Lord, that you keep us. You've loved us with an everlasting love. We have enjoyed grace from before the foundation of the world, and we will enjoy grace to eternity. We love you and thank you for your gospel. We love you, Lord Jesus, for your grace to us. As we pray all these things in your name, amen.